All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Amen? All creatures. Well, good morning, Chili Bible. I am glad that you all are here this morning so we can worship God together. Uh, We're going to be looking together at Hebrews chapter 4, the rest of it, here this morning. But as you make your way there, I want you to call to mind another passage. Uh, I won't ask you to turn there, but if you, if you can, just think back for a minute to Genesis chapter 3 and God's inspired description of humanity's fall into sin. Do you remember what Adam and Eve did right after they ate the fruit they were commanded not to eat? What did they do? Do you remember? Uh, they did hide, but before that, they made clothes for themselves, right? Why did they do that? They were embarrassed. They All of a sudden, they went from naked and unashamed to naked and ashamed, so they started up Operation Fig Leaf, got the first clothing factory going, and uh, decided they would cover themselves, even though they're the only two people on the planet, Right? Why? Because now all of a sudden shame has entered into the picture and shame has caused them to do what they did next, which is when they hear God's voice, run and hide. Run and hide. They have got to get out of the presence of a holy God. Uh, When God came to spend time with them as He customarily did, They fled from His presence. What did God do? Do you remember? He confronted them, and He judged them, and then in grace, He covered their shame and their guilt through through sacrifice and promised them that a Messiah would come to defeat the serpent who had led them into sin. Do you remember that passage? At the very time that judgment comes, at that very same moment, grace comes as well to cover their sin. And I believe that that story is true from beginning to end. And I believe it happened just as Genesis describes. And I also believe that it reveals to us our natural reaction to sin, which is to run from God and to try to hide. And the reason I bring it up is that Hebrew uh, chapter 4, here are these verses we're going to look at today, tells us that we can run, but we can't hide. You can run, but you can't hide, because God exposes our heart's deepest sinful secrets. So if you've made your way here to the passage, we'll read it together, and then let's pray. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, in your grace... You reveal our sin to us in all of its ugliness. 
And in our sinfulness, we want to run away from you. Though there is no place for us to hide. There is nowhere in the universe we may flee from your presence because you are present everywhere and you know all things. Father, help us instead of running away from you to run to you and to find grace there. And Father, I pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts this morning and would change us from the inside out. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage, these, uh, these three verses we're looking at, is the conclusion to the preceding instruction about entering God's rest. Remember, we've spent a lot of time talking about God's rest and how today is the day you need to enter into it. And if you remember last week when we talked about it, or you, have, or you can go back and read, that God's rest is another way of talking about our salvation. And the writer of Hebrews has been making it clear that in order for you to enter into God's rest, in order for you to possess, in other words, eternal life, that you're going to have to have genuine faith. And your genuine faith is indicated by what happens when the pressure gets turned up a little bit. That if you are a person who abandons God and runs away from Him and from your previous profession of faith, uh, when the pressure comes, that you do not possess genuine faith. And so the whole book of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are tempted to do that, to walk away from their faith. But Hebrews is written to tell them, you can't walk away from this. This is the only place in all the world that you can find life is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's encouraging them and exhorting them and challenging them and confronting them, telling them you need to continue to pursue and persevere in faith. Because walking away will reveal that you've never possessed it to start with. And he's telling them, yeah, I know you're in tough circumstances, but if you possess genuine faith, you will enter into God's rest. And you will enjoy eternal life, and it will make all of this prior to now worth it. And verses 11 to 13, you know, you have kind of a a double-edged set of instructions. On the one hand, you've got encouragement, and on the other, you've got Uh, challenge and confrontation. You've got strong warnings on the other side. And the encouragement comes first. uh, Verse 11, the first part, first phrase there, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. In other words, he's saying to them, I believe that God's promise of rest is available, and we need to make sure that we go into it, that we need to make sure that we possess genuine faith because God's rest is still available to us, and therefore we don't want to miss out on enjoying it. We don't want to miss out on a wonderful opportunity to enjoy God's blessing and eternal life. Amen? But the remainder of these verses are a warning. They're all warnings. Look at the end of verse 11. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Well, what's he talking about? He means falling into the same kind of disobedience as the people of the Exodus generation. He's just been describing. 
for the last, well, portions of the last two chapters. He's been talking about the people who came out with Moses in the Exodus. They saw the plagues. They experienced uh, all of that. They watched what happened to Egypt as they rebelled against God's, against God's will to let the people go. Uh, all the plagues fell on Egypt, and then they are led out, actually thrown out of Egypt uh, by uh, Pharaoh and all of the people of Egypt. They want to get rid of them so bad, they give them every, every treasure of their house that they want. Just leave, be gone. And finally, they come out and they cross the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army chasing them. And Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the same water that the Israelites came safely across. And they get out into the desert and they receive the the command of God from Mount Sinai. The elders of Israel actually see God up on the mountain. And then they come up after they've received all the law coming down from Sinai. They go up to the edge of the land and they send in spies, one from each tribe. And if you remember the story, 12 spies come back and they all say universally, it's a good land with an amazing, amazing amount of fruitfulness. And 10 of them say, however... There are giants that live there, and we look like grasshoppers to them and in our own eyes, and we will die if we go into there. And two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, say, it's a good land, and the giants are too big to miss. And so therefore, God is, and on top of that, God is with us, and we are going to go in and take it. And we should, we should enjoy and enter into God's presence and into, with God's presence into the land that He has promised us and, re, and receive the rest that He's given to us. But the nation follows the majority. I know we live in a democracy where majority rules. Sometimes the majority is idiots. Okay? <laughs> and in this case, that proved true. Right? None of us is as dumb as all of us together, right? But, but they believe the majority of the spies. And as a result, they, they are forbidden from entering the land until every one of the people who are 20 years old and older is dead in the desert except for Caleb and Joshua. They alone, of all the people of that generation, get to enter into the land. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, we need to be careful that none of us fail to enter into eternal life. Because that whole generation heard the good report about the good land that God wanted to bring them into. Just as many of us have been in church and we have heard the good news about all that God wants to do for us and the kingdom that is to come and how God will reign and we will dwell with Him and be His people. And a lot of us have heard all of that before, but the choice is between obeying and embracing that good news and rejecting it and failing to receive it. And he says, I don't want you, you Hebrews, to hear the good news about all that God is doing to establish his kingdom, and you yourselves fail to enter into it. Amen? And the same warning is there for us. 
To fall to the same sort of disobedience would be to reject the good news of the gospel of Jesus and to, as a result, be shut out of heaven for eternity. And verses 12 and 13 underline the warning here. Verse 12 tells us that God's word penetrates into the very deepest recesses of our souls. When it speaks here of the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, it's speaking, I believe, of things that can't normally be divided. Your soul and your spirit are references to the immaterial part of you, the part of you that makes you who you are as a human being, and which will last into eternity in one place or another. And in the same way, the long bones that come together to make up your major joints are all filled with bone marrow. It's a poetic way of saying that God's Word is so powerful in its effect on us that it pierces us in places we didn't know we had places. Right? Some of you know I've been been trying to work out with Dale Riggin here and going to Pierce. And for the first month, I hurt in places I didn't know I had places. (laughs) Right? Uh, I, 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 I hurt in muscles. I didn't know I had muscles, right? And in fact, I don't have muscles, and that's part of the problem, right? Um, and, that's, and, and that is the... But that's what he's talking about when he says that God's Word gets in to the, all the cracks and crevices of our soul. And it reveals to us what is really there. And when it does, it reveals our, our thoughts and our intentions. In other words, we might be able to hypocritically sit in a congregation of people, and we might be able to, to convince the, everybody around us, oh yes, oh yes, I, I know the Lord, me and my piety. I mean, aren't I a religious person, and don't I look good, Right? But the reality is, is that God's Word is able to discern who we really are on the inside where no one else can see. And it convicts us and tells us what the real story is. It reveals our thoughts and our intentions. God's Word works in us to reveal who we really are. And our real response to the gospel message will sooner or later become evident. And if we are disobedient to the good news that we have heard, it will show up. Amen? And verse 13 serves to underline the point. And it says that we shouldn't try to fool ourselves into somehow thinking that somehow God doesn't see. That you can spit and polish and you can apply cosmetics and fancy clothes and dress up and dress the part, but God sees through all of that. And if we aren't His children, there is simply no way to hide it from Him. We and our, and our thoughts and our motives and our sin are as visible to God as completely exposed as a blue whale would be out in our church parking lot. All right? Do you think you would notice if all of a sudden somebody just dropped that thing out there, all 220 feet of it? Right? I mean, it would be obvious, right? And in the same way, our hearts and our motives and, our, and what we, who we really are, we can cloak that in front of everybody else. 
But in front of God, we stand naked and exposed, and He can see what the real story is. He can see what the real story is, and we will have to give account of ourselves to Him. And please understand, the writer of Hebrews is not telling us these things to scare us. He is telling us to warn us away from the consequences of rejecting the gospel because he loves us. Amen? Just like if, you know, when my kids were small, you know, they, they always wanted to play in the front yard, which was fine, but they always wanted to play as close to the street as possible. Right? There's something about the asphalt that's just like a magnet. Just drew them out there, right? And, and a lot of times that's no big problem. I don't live on a particularly busy street, but there, it kind of curves around and it avoids the stop sign there at Bradley and Cloverdale. And there are some folks in our community that really don't want to have to stop at that stop sign. And, so they, and they like to take that curve at about 70, Right? I've found their tire tracks in my yard at times. You know, like, how did you get so far off the road that you're up 10 feet into my grass? I don't get that, right? And it's because they're taking that corner, you know, like it's NASCAR, right? And so I would worry about my children, and I would warn them, and I would tell them, beware the consequences of, of failing to heed your instruction. Amen? There are consequences, and they did not understand physics. Frankly, I don't understand physics either all that well, but here's what I do know. It's better to be the big rock than the smaller one, (laughs) right? And when that 2,000-pound car comes around that corner, you as a 75-pound child are not going to come out on the good end of that deal, right? And because I love them, I warn them away from the consequences of their foolishness. Right? Don't play in the street. Don't play out there by the road. There are, there are things out there that can hurt you. And the same kind of, of motive is behind these warnings in Hebrews. That he loves them and he does not want them to experience God's judgment. He wants them to experience God's blessing. And he says, so let us be sure that we enter that rest while the opportunity is still available. Amen? Because there is one day coming, a day when the opportunity, when the door of opportunity closes. Whenever you die, your opportunity is over. And as Jesus said, if... If a man had known at what time the thief was breaking into his house, he would not have let his house be broken into, right? If you knew the robber was coming at 8.05, you'd have the police waiting for him on the other side of the door, right? Uh, Excuse me, what are you doing here? Uh, By the way, uh, kneel on the ground, lace your fingers behind your head, right? Uh, They'd get him, right? But you don't know. And in the same way, you don't know when you're going to die. And whenever that day comes, it's too late to make a different decision. And so he is warning them. And because God loves us, God caused these words to be written down for us as well. That we might 
also hear His instruction to them and learn from it for us. That, that whatever, we, whatever front we put up, God sees right through it. And He knows who we really are. And if we are His children, we enter into rest and blessing and joy and eternal life. And if not, we are cut off from all those things. We are, as Thessalonians says, shut out from the presence of God and the majesty of His power. And that is the worst possible thing that can happen to a human being. To be shut out from the source of life and joy and beauty and happiness for eternity. And so it's a warning. But we also have, on the other side of this, encouragement. Verses 14 through 16. And I love these verses. These are some of my favorite verses in my entire Bible. I love these. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen? These are great verses. You ought to memorize these or put them on a poster uh, on your wall or something because these are fantastic truths. Now think back to Genesis 3 with me a minute. What should Adam and Eve have done as soon as they sinned? They should have run to God for help rather than away from Him and tried to hide from Him. Amen? And, they w- and, and when they went, rather than finding somebody else to blame for their sin, which Adam, he's my favorite in that whole exchange, right? He says, the woman, always, always a sign of manliness when you throw your wife under the bus, right? That's true masculinity right there. The woman whom you gave me, in other words, her fault, your fault, (laughs) God, ultimately you are to blame here, (laughs) Um, (laughs) whom you gave me, gave me the fruit, and I ate it, right? Notice who's last in in that equation, right? Uh, Oh yeah, I, I have some responsibility here too, but you know, it's after her and after you, right? What a, what a profile and courage he is, right? And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She does the same thing. She passes the buck a little lower down the chain. She doesn't blame God for it. But at the same time, they put their own responsibility at the back of the, the chain of causality, right? But instead of finding someone else to blame for it, they should have owned up to it and sought forgiveness for it. Amen? So why didn't they do that? I, you know, we can only speculate because the Scripture doesn't specifically tell us, and I don't therefore really know. But here's what I think the reasons are. I think it's because that sin brings with it shame and guilt, and that makes us want to hide ourselves rather than reveal what is really in us. I think that's part of it. And I think it's also because 
they might not have thought that a holy God would be sympathetic to their fall into sin. But look at verse 14. The beautiful thing that God has done for us in our situation is that by His grace, we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, high priest's job is to function as the intermediary, the go-between, between us and God. And our high priest is unique. He is not a high priest like in the Old Testament. The Old Testament high priest, you know, that guy stood on the dirt before, you know, in, in the presence of God in the tabernacle. He could only do that once per year. And... But he says, but we have a high priest who is not still standing here on earth. He has passed through the heavens. Well, why is he able to do that? Well, because he was returning home. Wasn't from here. He is the Son of God, as the text says in verse 14. And and because of that, he is our perfect high priest. And He ascended into heaven, and He can intercede for us because He Himself is God. And knowing that, there's a conclusion. We should hold on to the faith that we profess. No other belief system on earth tells us that God became a man in order to redeem sinful human beings, in order that they might be brought into relationship with Him, in order that the people who know relationship with Him might tell other people how to come into relationship with Him, that all people all over the entire globe would all gather together and celebrate the redemption that God has brought. No other belief system compares to that. In fact, compared with that, you know, Christianity is like a Bugatti Veyron next to a busted roller skate, okay? You know what a Bugatti Veyron is? It's a $2 million car that goes 250 miles an hour. I want one. (laughs) Okay, I do. I want want one of those cars and about 10 miles of straight road, (laughs) right? I want to feel my hair catch fire, right? But we have that, and every other belief system in the world is like a busted roller skate. We have the most magnificent belief system in all of the world. The dream of human beings is that God would become a man and that He would enter into our experience and then would therefore function for us as a great high priest like we have. And that's what we possess in Christ. And so he says, let us hold fast our confession. The Son of God came down to earth and lived among us and now serves as our great high priest. And in verse 15, we get another reason to hang on to our confession. He is not just the Son of God. He is also just like us. And therefore, He is a sympathetic priest. He's a priest who has been tempted in every way just like us. And He knows every kind of 
of temptation that we experience. He knows how strong the pull of sin really is because he has resisted all the way through to the very end. He has gone through his entire earthly life resisting the temptation towards sin without giving in once. And so he knows how strong the fight against sin really is. So we don't need to hide from him thinking that he won't really understand. He understands perfectly our weakness and our sin. And he knows how easy it is for us to fall because he knows how deeply the roots of temptation go. And only in his perfect sinlessness is he distinct from us in his humanity. His humanity is just like ours. He is not just the Son of God. He is also a perfect human being. And as a perfect human being, experience life just like we do. And verse 16 takes that, that all that encouragement and draws a conclusion from it. It says, let us then, or you could say, therefore, draw, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called? The mercy seat. Mercy seat. And on top of it sat two golden cherubs. And the idea of the mercy seat was that that these two cherubs that represented the holiness of God were looking down into the box of the Ark of the Covenant because in that box were all of the things that represented the rebellion of the people of Israel. And on the Day of Atonement... What would happen is that the high priest would come and he would pour out his, the blood of sacrifice all over that lid. And the idea is, is that the blood of sacrifice covers over the sin of the people so that the holiness of God is satisfied. And that ark also functioned as, if you will, the, a symbolic throne of God's presence on earth. And, and it was, and the Shekinah glory cloud came down, if you've seen illustrations of that. This, this cloud that, that represented God's presence descended on the tabernacle and later on the temple, and it rested right above the Ark of the Covenant. Picturing in a physical way what is true in a, in a real way in, in God's presence in heaven. Remember, Isaiah has this vision, and he sees... God seated on a throne, and what's underneath the throne flying around? These angels crying out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And Ezekiel, when he has his visions at the river, he has the same thing. God seated on an exalted throne, and these winged creatures flying about underneath Him. And the ark represented that represented God's throne on earth, seated above the cherubim, as he is described in the Scriptures. And I think the writer of Hebrews is reminding his readers, and therefore reminding us, 
that Jesus is the fulfillment of the atoning sacrifice. His blood has been poured out for us, and therefore we can do something that no ordinary Israelite could do. We could draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, or if you will, to the mercy seat of the living God. Any time that we want to do. You know, only the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement did the priest go in to the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt above the cherubim and the ark. And he never went in without blood. And he, when he went in, it was a fearful thing. In fact, the way that the priest's robes were made, they were bells that, that alternated with pomegranates all around the, the hem of the robe, golden bells. Do you know why they were there? So that when you heard the ringing of the bells from the outside, you know that the priest has not been struck dead by the holiness of God. And this happened, by the way. Read Leviticus. You'll read about two priests, two sons of Aaron, who were struck dead by the holiness of God because they did not respect the rules for worship. And it was a, it was a fearful thing to come into God's presence. They did not approach with confidence. But because we have Jesus, the great high priest, who has sacrificed himself as the atoning sacrifice for sin, we don't come in fear and trembling before the living God. We come into the presence of God. What's the text say? With confidence we can draw near to the mercy seat, to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those are some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. They give such a beautiful picture, I think, for us of Jesus' high priestly ministry in heaven and on our behalf and of our ability to come to Him for grace and for mercy And we need to make sure we don't miss the thrust of this passage. That which way you run makes a great deal of difference. Amen? That when God's Word exposes you in your sin, you have two choices. You can run and hide, or you can run to the throne of grace. Amen? Because... Reality is, though you may run away from God, you can't really hide. Amen? We're all going to one day stand before Him. And it will either be, it will either be a great reunion of the homecoming of the child to the presence of His Father. Or it will be a fearful thing where you stand before the judge exposed in all of your sin. And so to borrow a word from earlier in the passage, today is the day to make that choice, which kind of reception you're going to receive. Amen? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us run to the throne of grace. Because whatever your sin, whatever it is, You need to know this, 
that Jesus' death on the cross paid for it. Amen? Jesus' death on the cross pays for all people, for all sin, for all time. And you can look it up. Read Hebrew, read, skip ahead, read Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. It'll tell you one sacrifice for all people, for all sin, for all time. One sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so whatever your sin is, run to Jesus and find grace. The particular sin that Hebrews has written to address is apostasy, the sin of making a profession of faith with your mouth that does not reside in your heart, which results in walking away from the faith when things get difficult or sin gets attractive. But God's grace is sufficient not just for that sin, but for every sin. And some people run from God their whole lives because they are convinced that they and their sin are too great for God to forgive. Amen? I heard somebody say, well, I can't go to church, Pastor, because if I show up there, like lightning will come down from heaven and strike me, right? And I think what they're thinking is that, well, I know that God is holy and His holiness is too great for me to enter into His presence with my stuff, and therefore, when I get my life cleaned up, well, then I'll come into God's presence. Guess what? You will never get your life cleaned up apart from coming into God's presence. It will not happen. Remember the great story, Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Remember that? Remember Eustace Clarence Scrub. There's a nasty little boy who almost deserved his name, right? (laughs) And Eustace Clarence crawls into a dragon's lair, and he finds a dragon's hoard, and he lays on it, and he falls asleep, remember? And he wakes up having become a dragon. And Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure in those stories, comes to him and, and Eustace works as hard as he can to scratch off his dragon scales, right? And he can't do it. He tries to clean up the outside and make himself look better because all of a sudden he's convicted of his sin in the presence of God. And he's, he tries to scratch harder and get it off. And he can't do it, no matter how hard he tries. If he gets one layer of dragon hide off, there's another underneath, a fresh one. And the lion speaks and he says, you'll have to let me undress you. And he takes a giant claw and he rips down the middle of Eustace's dragon body and finds the little boy inside. Eustace is reborn. Because when we come to God... With all of our stuff, He is able to make us clean and new. Amen? But by our own effort, we remain a child of the dragon. Amen? We have in this passage beautiful truth. 
we find out that however much we try to hide, that we and our sins lay naked and exposed before God, and that every crack and crevice and hidey hole of our souls lays bare before Him. But we also find out that confronting us is a God of grace and of mercy, a God who sends His Son to become a sympathetic priest, a God who sent His Son to spill His own blood that we might have the privilege of drawing near to Him with confidence and finding grace and mercy and forgiveness for all that we've ever done and all that we ever will do. Amen? Beloved brothers and sisters, hear God's Word on this. There is no better news in all the universe than this. That the God who confronts us in our sin has made payment for our sin. That we might enter into his presence freely and with confidence, forgiven and washed clean. Amen. The God who confronts us with our sin sent his son for our sin. That we might be cleansed of our sin. Amen. Let's go boldly with confidence to the throne of grace together right now. Amen? Let's go. God, our Heavenly Father, You have given us wonderful, wonderful grace. Amazing truth that the God who confronts us with our sin has sent His Son for our sin that we might be set free from our sin because you love us with an everlasting love and you hold us with your everlasting arms and you invite us to come to you to receive forgiveness to have the blood of Jesus poured out over us that we might be made righteous in your sight you tell us to come boldly before the throne of grace to your mercy seat that we might receive grace and mercy and help in time of need. Father, we come to you this morning in need. We are aware of our sin, and we know how much we need your grace. We thank you that you have already provided many of us with forgiveness and healing and life. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has spent their life to this point running away from you, even as they sit in this room, Father, I pray that they would come to you. They would stop trying to hide. They would come to you instead. And they would bow their knee before Jesus Christ and say, My Lord and my God, my Savior, and whom I trust. And that they would offer their lives to him and receive eternal life and enter into God's rest and enjoy being in your presence at the throne of grace. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.